0: Welcome back. It's Mark Steiner. You're listening to The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, The Voice of the Community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. Today on the program, we listened to a conversation I moderated two weeks ago at the 16th Eastern Shore Planning Conference in Eastern Maryland. The theme of this year's conference was Powering Our Renewable Energy Future. and The conversation I moderated was called Getting the Right Mix, a conversation on a resilient, renewable, rural region. So it's interesting, one of the things that somebody said um, a moment ago as we were talking before this panel started, um, how do we how do you sing not to the choir? And I don't think necessarily, as we'll see in this discussion, the choir is necessarily singing the same tune. And I think we have, that's what we're gonna to try to parse through and see how can we sing the same tune? What is that tune? when it comes to our energy future. And on the panel is Mike Tidwell, down at the very end. Mike Tidwell is founder and director of the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. He's an author and a filmmaker uh, who predicted in vivid detail the Katrina hurricane disaster in his book, Bayou Farewell, uh, the Rich Life and Death of Louisiana's Cajun Coast. Uh, his his uh, most recent book uh, is The is a Ravaging Tide, Strange Weather Future, Katrina's and the Race to Save America's Coastal Cities. Uh, and uh, he's been in the press a lot and on our program a lot too. Uh, and next to him uh, is, next to him is, um, who's down there. Oh yeah, I couldn't see who was there. Uh, and next to him is Ernie Shea, uh, who is President and CEO of Natural Resources Solutions, LLC. Uh, from 68 to 2004, he served as Chief Executive Officer of the National Association of Conservation Districts. I uh, was a former assistant secretary for agriculture, for agricultural development and resource conservation. Uh, and next to him is Becky Rush, and Becky Rush is managing member of DERP Technologies LLC, which is distributed electronic, election, ele- electric, renewable power, headquartered in Hagerstown, Maryland, and program director for community renewable energy projects for the Land and Cultural Preservations Fund Inc. And uh, next to her is Jay Falstad. Jay Falstad is the executive director of the Queenlands Conservation Association. Uh, he is a farmer uh, and serves on the Harry Hughes Center for Agroecology and uh, has his own solar energy going on his farm. So welcome and welcome to all of you. So this has been recorded. Uh, we're going to be playing it I guess a week from after Thanksgiving on sound bites which you can also hear on uh, public radio on Eastern Shore. Uh, it'll be on our website, so, and we're going to be going to the audience, which is going to be a huge piece of this. We're going to see a lot of interaction between audience and panel uh, about these ideas and where we're going. But so let, let, it, and it is a very contentious thing here. Um, we've seen in here on the on the shore in Del Marva the, the fights against wind power, um, and whether it was the Mills Branch wind energy project or uh, the Great Bay wind project. I mean, they both caused a huge amount of uproar um, when we ran a town meeting on the lower shore two or three months ago, um, where people were trying, attempting to figure out how to stop more chicken houses from coming in their community. Um, almost to a person, people said, we don't want wind turbines or something else. Said, we don't want solar all over the ground. So what do we want is the question. What is a the vision then for what happens on the Eastern Shore from here on out when it comes to renewable energy? Say, what, what, is the what is the vision?
1: Well, my vision uh, and one that I think um, works the best with the shore, uh, happens to be a combination of solar power and geothermal. And geothermal hasn't been maybe talked about that much, but it's certainly something that we should include into the mix. One of the things that we have always been concerned about, uh, at least with with things like um, wind turbines, is here on the Eastern Shore, we are really in the heart of the Atlantic Flyway. And so do you really want feather shredders, spinning around, hitting geese, eagles, and that sort of thing. And they do stand out from an aesthetic standpoint. In my view, probably aren't really what we want. Solar, on the other hand, we get an awful lot of sun in this area. Uh, I personally have solar on my farm. We now power our entire farm uh, with a small system, and we are saving a lot of money. And so, um, from my standpoint, The Eastern Shores' uh, vision for energy, I hope, will include much more solar than what we have now and um, also much more geothermal. The next thought
0: about this from Rebecca Rush.
2: First of all, I do want to say that I am not employed by Maryland Energy Administration, but for the last uh, three years, we have gone around the state representing the subject of community wind energy. And it's important to describe community wind energy as something that is Considerably smaller in scale and a number of turbines than what you would consistently be thinking of as a merchant or commercial wind project, and um, and in that respect, a community wind project is something where the electrons stay local, where the economic benefit stays local. It is generally going to be one wind turbine, maybe two wind turbines, and associated with, for instance, a. Whether it's an industrial park or a wastewater plant or something to provide that clean, renewable energy, and have a direct local benefit. <coughs> one, other adbo- one other advocacy point for community wind energy is not not only the fact that it is clean and renewable, is the fact that it, in many cases, complements solar. And many times, if the sun isn't shining, or certainly at night, the wind is blowing and the sun is not shining. And similarly, in terms of agriculture preservation issues, a wind turbine has a very, very small footprint. So, if the consideration is how much land is being used for renewable energy, having one wind energy turbine on an agriculture property is not going to be necessarily a conflict with um, ag preservation as well.
0: And our next panelist, Ernie Shea. I've had the good fortune over the last uh, 10
3: years or so working with farmer, forestry, uh, ranching. Uh, leaders and communities across the country exploring rural America's role in a new energy future, and their conclusion is there is no one silver bullet, uh, that the new energy future that's evolving is a future that's going to require lower carbon uh, energy sources, it's going to be more distributed, it's going to be more decentralized, and there are a wide variety of uh, clean renewable energy options that rural America can deliver, so that would include Delmarva. So whether it's wind energy, solar energy, geothermal, small hydro, biopower, uh, biofuels, uh, we have been exploring ways to draw the benefits out of all of those solution sets and the key I think is to make sure that they're done right. These energy solutions have got to be able to compete economically against the old legacy systems. And that's why enabling public policies are so important that they be maintained to help uh, ensure that they can scale up uh, but at the end of the day they, they have to pass the sustainability test they have to be economically viable they have to be environmentally sound and they have to be socially accepted and it takes a conversation it takes a lot of collaboration to move from an old energy world to a new energy world and I think a mistake we often make is picking winners and losers and thinking that there's one silver bullet solution so for the shore here, I think we have an opportunity to contribute clean energy solutions on multiple fronts and I would hope we would keep an open mind about uh, looking for ways to scale up all of those.
0: Mike Tidwell.
4: Well, first of all, I think we all agree we're running out of time to save the Eastern Shore of Maryland. Uh, I was gratified to see that the number one motivation in this crowd for promoting renewables was to reduce carbon to address climate change. Climate change is rapidly erasing this region, half an acre a day. Half an acre a day of the Blackwater Wildlife Refuge turns to water every day. Today, half an acre will be disappeared tomorrow as well. So we do need a mix. There's lots of different renewable energy uh, projects that uh, make sense for the eastern shore. Uh, And wind power is one of those. Wind is not new to the eastern shore. Early Europeans got here. Under wind power, uh, there are many of the remaining uh, windmills for milling grain still here on the eastern shore that were in operation for centuries. This is not a new technology to the eastern shore. We just need to advance it. Uh, I'm also a birder. I've been a birder all my life. One of the main reasons I support wind power, including utility-scale wind power for the eastern shore, is because I'm a birder. Because the number one threat to bird habitat all over the world is climate change. The number one threat to birds on the eastern shore is climate change. And two birds per year per turbine, that's the mortality rate average nationally for utility scale wind turbines. Two birds per turbine per year. Cats kill billions of times more birds than wind turbines. So of course as a birder I would never advocate for a wind farm in Somerset County or Kent County that I thought was a real threat to bird populations. I believe utility scale wind can and should coexist among the mix of energy that we need to look at. I have solar panels on my roof we should do some geothermal but the idea that geothermal and solar alone are going to get us to carbon reductions fast enough to save the eastern shore it's going to have to include utility-scale wind. Look at Iowa, the number one agricultural state in the country, the number one farm state in the country, 25 percent of their electricity now comes from
0: utility-scale wind. It might be good to start with just the question of what actually can get the job done. Part of the reality is most of the energy being saved and built goes into the grid and that's for everybody, not just the shore. I mean, so let's start with that. Are we dealing with mythology or reality when we talk about whatever we're doing has to do with the shore alone? the energy for the shore. Is it reality or is that, is that something that we argue about, discuss, but is that really real? I, I think it is.
1: I mean, for I'll just use my own farm as the example. Um, we put on a very small system on our barn. Uh, we have not paid an electric bill uh, in seven months. Seven months. I think it is doable. Uh, if we had added geothermal to that equation, um, we would be overproducing Uh, on solar and be getting money back from the utility. So I think it's doable on a small scale, on a larger scale. I also think it can be done, uh, as you and I were talking about earlier. Right now on the Eastern Shore, there are poultry houses all up and down the Eastern Shore. I think the total number, uh, according to the Delmarva Poultry Institute, 4,761 poultry houses on the Eastern Shore. Most of those are oriented east to west to take advantage of the prevailing winds so that they can ventilate, which means their roof lines are facing north and south. But as you drive around the eastern shore, how many of you have seen poultry houses with all of that real estate that's being taken up with not a single solar panel on it? And imagine, just for a moment, if all of those poultry houses could be either retrofitted or fitted somehow to include solar panels It could produce enough energy, at least by some back-of-the-envelope calculations, to power tens of thousands of houses on the shore. And so it can be done. And as Mike says, it must be done. We're running out of time. And so um, the answer is yes, it can be done.
0: Becky?
2: I believe that energy independence is both an economic issue, as well as an, um, an issue related to the electrons and to leverage what you said as well. I think that uh, looking at community planning as kind of the bedrock of a number of these things, if you had incentives, if you had um, planning systems in place so that as a chicken house is being built or designed, it is um, allowed to have or suggested to have either a better roof or the appropriate um, passive design so that it can take um, advantage of the sun that's naturally there or the wind that's naturally blowing. Um, I think that community planning is essential. I think that there are a number of stakeholders that are advocates for um, community wind, energy, solar, any kind of, of programs. And now there are a number of organizations starting um, at, the, at the federal level. The National Institutes for Standards and Technology has recently formed a community resiliency panel. And this includes energy as one of the um, key elements. And if they can Um, Put together, they're putting together and publishing a a report now on community resiliency, which includes a number of factors such as water and wastewater, um, transportation, communication, and energy. So, energy is pivotal to all these issues and it should be part of a comp plan, not just piecemeal.
4: So, first of all, I love your idea jay i've never thought about chicken houses that way um that seems like i mean i think we may have to reinforce those roofs because it's not exactly sturdy construction for a lot of those chicken houses to hold the weight of the solar panels but clearly it seems like it could be done i think it's a great idea here's the thing it is being done and to the issue of bipartisanship uh just three weeks ago six republican Agency secretaries for the Hogan administration, we're talking Secretary of Transportation, Planning, Environment, etc., six of them, joined me as part of the Maryland Climate Commission in voting unanimously to set a mandatory goal by the year 2030 in Maryland of reducing greenhouse gas emissions 40%. 40% 40% below 2006 levels. Um, that bill, the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Act, is going to pass in the 2006 General Assembly with bipartisan support. And also, a separate bill, the Renewable Portfolio Standard, the Clean Electricity Standard, is going to be increased by the General Assembly to 25% renewable energy by the year 2020, which is a which is a significant increase in our goal. All of that to say that the state, in a bipartisan fashion, increasingly is committed to stepping up this clean energy conversion, which means that one would hope that the region of the state most vulnerable to climate change, the eastern shore, would be able to take advantage of that economic revolution in terms of jobs. I mean, Somerset County, poorest county in the state, perfect, if there was a perfect place for wind power, it's Somerset County. And farmers and tractors came and drove around uh, the state house a couple of years ago in support of that. Um, so I hope that the Eastern Shore can take advantage of that, of that change that's coming very rapidly.
3: Ernie? I got involved in uh, renewable energy, clean energy development work right after 9-11. And the driving force for change at that point in time was all about national security. And that's a major driver today, because we're still uh, too dependent on uh, fossil fuels, and oil, and those are high carbon fuels that create significant environmental challenges that uh, are are clearly exacerbating our climate change uh, challenges we face. But as you think about what's happened over these past 14, 15 years since 9-11, there's been a rapid expansion of renewable energy development. And it has been the fastest growing uh, part of our energy portfolio. So that today, uh, when we started this, this uh, initiative that I'm involved with, back in 2003 or 4, about 5% of the nation's energy came from renewable sources. Today, we're exceeding 13%, and we're on our way up. Uh, states have adopted enabling policies that are clearly incentivizing the further build-out, scale-up, and development of clean energy. And while Washington is in gridlock and can't figure out north, south, east, or west, and clearly has failed in developing a comprehensive long-term energy policy. The states have not been sitting by. They've been moving forward, developing uh, incentives, developing uh, appropriate uh, policies to remove barriers. Uh, And it's hard work to maintain the policy platform that's needed to scale up these renewable energy technologies when you're fighting the old legacy industry that is hanging on to the old world order which was about large-scale, centralized production of electricity using fossil fuels and pushing it out through the grid to uh, the end consumer. And the vision that we're talking about here at this conference is the opposite. We're talking largely about decentralized power production, where we're producing uh, energy from a variety of sources. And that's why I think it's so important for Governor Hogan and his administration and the state legislature to uh, continue to show leadership in the space and create the types of clean energy incentives that are gonna allow for the build out of solar panels on poultry houses as one example of where we can contribute clean energy solutions that are gonna drive further economic growth, reduce carbon emissions, and improve natural security. So it's a, it's a win-win-win outcome. Since I've
1: got Mike's attention on the, on the poultry houses, and hopefully I have all of your attention too, on this one particular issue, and again just using back of the envelope calculations uh, based on the numbers that I got from the Delmarva Poultry Institute, if we were to, and I, and I recognize that some of these poultry houses have limitations on their structure, those would have to be uh, improved in order to carry the weight. But to illustrate the point, um, if we were to retrofit some of these poultry houses with solar panels, you have the capacity in taking a standard 3x5 Uh, solar panel, the number would equal 3.5 million solar panels on poultry houses, generating potentially 90 million kilowatts for the eastern shore. And if you start to do the math on that, that is clearly something that we ought to be, that's the direction that we ought to be going into. And if you can further incentivize the poultry grower and get Purdue and some of the other companies involved in this, it's in everybody's interest to do, and, um, and we ought to be doing it. So I'm, I'm glad you like the idea. I hope you'll take it forward however you can, and we should all be trying to promote that in, every, so, in whatever way we can.
0: One of the things, I mean, when you, when you look at where we are now, I mean, there, there are a couple of issues here that seem to be glaring, and I think they're, they're not easy to deal with. The fact is that the change we've seen, where coal has gone down to maybe 45 44% of energy generation in the state of Maryland. What's gone up has been natural gas and nuclear energy. Those are the two things that have gone up. Wind and solar make up, if we're lucky, 3%, 4%. Not very much. And there has not been much growth in that at all. And so that begs the question about how you get to where you keep talking about. Um, and people argue about what renewable means. Some people in the governor's administration would say that renewable means, whether you agree or not, means gas, means Mean because of the, the, the huge amount of gas that we have that's flowing in and the pipes that people want to build through the state of Maryland. It also means nuclear, which some people support, some people don't support, as renewable, very little energy, no pun intended, I don't think, um, is being invested in the idea of what does the infrastructure cost compared to the other and how do you pay for it if you want to move to wind and solar? Where's the reality? Where's the money? What's it cost?
4: Well, first of all, uh, this country went from kerosene lamps to electric lighting overnight. Uh, infrastructure uh, was accomplished very, very quickly. Um, we're going to make the transition from fossil-based electricity and, and cars uh, to carbon-free energy much faster than people. Well, but and
0: my to? Typically- where's the money going to come from? And when you talk about, people say that, you have a battle in US Congress now and in mm-hmm. our state assembly over the money. So when we talk about we're gonna change the grid, that's been moving along very slowly. We haven't put money into that yet. We're talking about solar and wind. Where is the money coming from who pays for it? I mean, oil companies pay for the oil wells because they're making money, um, right? Coal pays for the mines, mine owners, because they make money on their coal. So where does the money come from? How do you begin to make that change when the battle's gonna be over laying pipe or building more nuclear plants or doing more wind and solar? So. We, so so, so it's nuclear, not
4: 1895. It, the Maryland General Assembly, in a matter of few weeks, will pass an increase of the state's clean electricity standard to 25% clean electricity by the year 2020. They started that process in 2004 with an original bill that said seven and a half percent of the state's electricity would come from clean electricity by the year 2022. We're already ramping up. The number of solar jobs, there were like five solar contractors in the whole state in Maryland in 2004 when the first bill uh, was passed. Now there are more jobs in the solar industry than the crab industry in Maryland today, just barely 10 years later. So it is happening and it's policy that's driving it. Not not private investment saying, oh, we're going to build massive pipelines and all that. Policy is leading the way in Maryland, and the companies are responding. The solar companies are coming here, the wind companies are coming here, we're gonna have offshore wind. So it is happening, and the General Assembly is now saying, let's make it happen faster, and that is a market-based incentive for states to get involved.
0: So, continuing my devil's advocate role here, Ernie, you can jump in. I mean, We look at the state legislature, they passed a thing called the Thornton Bill, which was to pay for changing our schools. Great policy, no money. So I think
3: part of the good news is that the cost of installing these cleaner forms of uh, electricity generation have fallen substantially. And as we've scaled up and built out wind energy and solar energy, the cost per kilowatt has come down significantly, whereas five or ten years ago it was a major barrier in terms of competing with fossil fuels, and today it's not. So I think one of the most important roles to further uh, that the public policy officials can make to further help scale up this is to remove the barriers. So there are uh, opportunities to improve access to the grid. There are opportunities to um, uh, further build out these renewable portfolio standards at the state. Uh, Improvements in net metering laws. There's a lot of granular fine tuning adjustments that can be made to remove these barriers, because the economics are quickly showing that uh, removing the barriers allows them to be scaled up.
0: Becky, go ahead.
2: Okay, um, a couple things that I think are very important. Not only the fact that the cost per kilowatt hour of things like uh, wind and solar energy are coming down, but also that we are still in that 40 percent deficit. We are an importer of electricity. We're very vulnerable to price increases in any of the other mixes of, of electric source, uh, such that or, or oil or gas sources time value of money is a very important thing, such that if somebody said today, I wanna go and invest in a natural gas plant, or I wanna go invest in a nuclear plant, it could take 15 years between the time that something was planned and something is ready to go. Right now with the incentives and with the decreasing prices, there's an opportunity for more investment from that commercial investor or the um, investor who is today looking for either Rex or um, for a short period of time, an energy um, incentive, a tax incentive. But in all cases, the time that it takes to theoretically get a, a solar or wind energy system off the ground is going to be considerably less than going through all the process of a cent- another centralized plant. In addition, any kind of time you have a centralized plant, now you have a distribution, uh, transmission and distribution network, which people don't want either. So I think that the, the movement towards distributed generation is something that more and more investors, third-party investors, are going to be interested in funding. And so there's actually another incentive that's available uh, financially. It's, uh, and it's, try- it's a loophole that they're trying to close through what's called the Master Limited Partnership Parity Act. Right now, if a group of independent investors choose to invest in a very large independent plant, there are tax incentives and available and corporate structures that are available to them that are not available if an organization, if a group of investors wants to invest in a very large solar or wind plant. And there are fixes that are trying to be made through the federal Congress, not necessarily so successfully because of the lobbies that have been supporting just what you're saying, the oil and gas industries.
0: You're listening to a panel I moderated two weeks ago at the 16th Eastern Shore Planning Conference in Eastern Maryland. The theme of this year's conference was Powering Our Renewable Energy Future. And the conversation I moderated was called Getting the Right Mix, a conversation on a resilient, renewable rural region. We have to take a very brief break, but don't go away. When we come back, we'll hear the rest of the conversation. Welcome back. It's Mark Steiner. You listen to the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. Today on the program, we listened to a conversation I moderated two weeks ago at the 16th Eastern Shore Planning Conference in Eastern Maryland. The theme of this year's conference was Powering Our Renewable Energy Future. And the conversation I moderated was called Getting the Right Mix, a conversation on a resilient, renewable, rural region. My guests were Mike Tidwell, director of the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. Jay Falstad, executive director of Queen Anne's Conservation Association and owner of Calico Fields Farm. Ernie Shea, president of Solutions from the Land. And Rebecca Rush, managing partner at DRP Technologies, LLC. I don't know if everybody on this panel just agrees or disagrees with, the, with this, this, this notion, but there are people who, agree with this notion, but there are people who have written a lot about the idea that the idea of distributive energy, localized, just doesn't work, because there's not enough renewable energy in any one location to take care of everyone's needs in that location, and that without a utility-sized push, whether it be wind or solar or whatever, it, we're, 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 it's pie in the sky. Um, we talk, so, I think, what, are your, what are your thoughts? I mean, what you, about that.
3: My sense is that the people that are talking that way are probably the legacy energy producers (laughs) that are heavily invested in fossil centralized power plant. I I think it's the opposite. I think we have examples all across the country where distributed renewable energy generation is mushrooming and growing and being knitted together in new microgrids. So you have to start somewhere. And it's one house, one farm roof. And from there, it it grows. Uh, It might be an early application where it's just applied more to the individual homeowner or to the individual farm and doesn't enter the grid, but as we build out these microgrids and as we remove the barriers to allow for the flow of these electrons from a distributed production platform into the bigger microgrids, you are gonna see it grow and expand. So I'm not worried about that. I think it's going to come. The the important part to keep in mind though is that we shouldn't be betting the farm, so to speak, just on solar or wind. The bioenergy solution sets that the Eastern Shore has available to it are enormous. And when you think about the poultry industry, and we've talked about poultry houses and the opportunity for solar. The poultry industry on Delmarva is struggling with a major environmental problem now. And it's nutrient loadings uh, going into our water bodies. And the source of that is poultry litter. So they're looking for a way to utilize that poultry litter that will eliminate the environmental degradation that it's causing and do something else with it. So something else with it is an energy application. And the poultry integrators, and the grain producers, and chicken growers, and a whole collection of conservation organizations here in Delmarva have banded together under the Delmarva Land and Litter Challenge. And their goal is that by the year 2025, the poultry and nutrient uh, problems will be gone. They're gonna eliminate that source of pollution. And the solution sets are gonna lie Uh, in a couple of major arenas, one of which is energy application, and there is no one, even in that example, silver bullet. I think what we're seeing is that the larger scale projects where you utilize and combine poultry litter from many houses are probably going to go to electricity generation, but the on-farm use of poultry litter to produce energy is probably going to be used for process heat, for heating uh, poultry barns. So there's a way to think bigger than solar and uh, wind, and simultaneously solve environmental problems. And that is also gonna improve uh, air quality, and it's gonna reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. So there's a lot of multiple wins here. if We just think out of the box and think about a new energy future.
4: Okay. Well said. Good. Okay. Yeah, I, I uh, agree that we have a big problem with chickens on the Eastern Shore, we all know that. Uh, I was shocked the other day to learn that when it became clear that the president had signed the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, that there was an incredible increase in interest among uh, chick- chicken-raising companies and expanding on the Eastern Shore, because they want to send Eastern Shore chickens to China. So imagine we have a problem now with, what, 300 million chickens on the eastern shore. Imagine when we're shipping a lot of those more chickens to China. So we got a big problem. I personally am a vegetarian because of climate issues. Uh, I, I don't eat uh, uh, beef and, 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 and chicken uh, because it's energy intensive. Um, and I don't, I don't believe that everyone should stop eating meat, but we certainly need to eat a lot less. If the whole world consumed meat at the rate, because meat's so energy intensive, if the whole world consumed meat at the level we do, we'd need five planets to grow all the grains and produce all the electricity, the refrigerator, etc. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that we have this problem of existing uh, manure on the eastern shore uh, I think there there could be some innovative ways to deal with that I haven't seen them yet they're probably going to be small scale and they have to be uh, reduce uh, create a carbon uh, reduction they can't be carbon additive uh, and if there could be significant carbon savings from composting manure capturing the methane to create uh, heating chicken houses or, or etc I think they're, uh, they're Parts of the Maryland environmental community who would be interested in learning more about that. But so far, there's been no magic bullet yet.
0: One of the questions, one of the deep battles here on the shore, has to do with wind uh, that I mentioned at the very top. So let's talk about that for a minute. I mean, when you look, there was was a University of Delaware study that said um, that there's a possibility to have all the electricity you need by 2030, but you can't do it without wind that solar doesn't make it completely on the Eastern Shore, that wind, whether it's offshore, or in certain parts of the Eastern Shore, or the only way with massive production that you can get the energy you need on the shores. And I'm throwing that out there. People can disagree or agree with that, but that's that's out there. So uh, Jay, I know you can jump on that one, right?
1: Yeah, so on wind, um, both at the residential level and also the large scale, um, we looked into wind on our places. We were looking for alternative solutions. And you didn't have to do very much research into getting into it, where you see that NOAA has a a paper that shows that the eastern shore just doesn't have that much wind. It's not sustained throughout the year. There are periods of the year where you get more uh, wind than other times. Offshore might be a solution, but this region on the land, you just don't get a steady wind like you might out west or on a mountaintop, And so it really just, doesn't make very much sense from that standpoint. And that's why I, I think solar is probably a, a better answer for this region. Um, there are others I know that disagree with me. But uh, for this region, I just don't think it's, it's the right thing. And then when you factor in the aesthetics and, and the transmission dimension, it really doesn't start to make very much sense at all.
0: Becky, go ahead well, I, would go to
2: be gl- I would be glad to share that the National Renewable Energy Labs has done studies that show that there are pockets of areas on the Eastern Shore that do have sufficient wind for substantially productive wind energy projects. It's not everywhere, and wind is absolutely one of the most locationally specific issues that, uh, that you can deal with. Um, you've got to have enough to make sense out of it, d- enough to make the wind energy t- turbines turn. Um, There are places that have enough wind, there are many that don't. Um, uh, I would say that like the Maryland Energy Administration now has what's called a community wind anemometer loan program for organizations, for communities that would like to have the ability to test how much wind there is at their location. And it's a year-long program where the data can be collected. And if the data substantiates the fact that there is sufficient wind at a location, then it makes it more of a bankable project where someone else can come in and and support it. But I will also agree with you from the perspective that there are not a lot of places in Maryland that have enough wind to make economic sense out of wind energy systems. I'm from Hagerstown. There are a few areas, western Maryland, that have very, very good wind resources. And again, there are pockets on the eastern shore. Not many, but there are some.
4: Well, there there there's some really great places for land-based wind on the eastern shore. That's why uh, several companies are putting their own capital at risk to come here and look into these areas. Somerset County certainly stands out. Again, if there was a perfect place in the universe to build, utility-scale wind farms at Somerset County. And by the way, wind farms do not disrupt any form of agriculture. Name your agriculture, wind farms don't disrupt it. If it's cattle, it's growing crops, whatever, you harvest wind at the same time that you harvest your agricultural product, period. Kent County's good, Queen Anne's County might be good. Should these wind farms be everywhere? No, they shouldn't. But what could possibly be less aesthetically offensive than what we're already seeing from sea level rise. I mean, you could travel a few feet from this building and and see the effects of sea level rise dying, valuable wetlands just dying, entire communities being destroyed. Um, We have to balance the reality of rapid climate change, rapid climate change, climate change right here, right now, people suffering, wildlife suffering right now, uh, versus Do we want to preserve a, whatever, a pristine definition of a bucolic eastern shore? It's not a question of pristine nature and rural communities versus solutions. There, you know, climate change is taking that away from us. There is no pristine. We have to carefully balance a rapid pathway to clean electricity that works for all people, including the eastern shore. There is no such thing as the perfect energy system. There's not a perfect energy system. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be better than the fossil fuel system that is killing us.
3: Bernie. So we've been talking about many different forms of renewable energy and how that can help lower the carbon footprint and create local economic opportunities. But this is uh, a resiliency conference. And I think the conversation has to go beyond just renewable energy. And as I've worked with agricultural communities across the country. I'm continually reminded that what this is really about is a conversation about how we manage our land, how we use the land. And I think thinking about integrated uses of land, where we're using the land base to produce food, fiber, fuel, energy, but simultaneously managing that land to produce cleaner water, cleaner air, sinking carbon dioxide. There's ways that we can manage and help the farm community, because they're the ones that actually manage the land. There are ways we can help farmers and foresters manage the land to produce multiple solutions from the land and do it in a way that continues to support economic development. I'm continually reminded about those that argue for or against any one individual technology or solution, and it's fall on the sword, win or lose over that. But the bigger question is, How are we going to keep agriculture economically viable? If we lose the agricultural industry on the Eastern Shore, we lose the economic engine of Delmarva, and with it, the quality of life that goes with it. So I would urge us to think about renewable energy development in the context of a bigger conversation about resiliency of land use on the Eastern Shore, recognizing that not everyone will deploy renewable energy, but everybody can contribute in the way they grow their crops, spread their litter, uh, capitalize on cleaner forms of energy. So it's, it's an integrated conversation. And when we fall into the trap of just managing for a wind outcome or a solar outcome or a water quality outcome, the farmer at the end of the day says, I've got to be the one that ties all these things together. So we need to think systems and integration.
4: If you can combust chicken manure, and, and have the electricity or heat generated from it be less than what you get from coal and gas, I think you would have a lot of people who would be very interested in seeing that technology. The existing technology that I've seen is that when you combust it and the companies who want to come to Maryland and combust chicken manure, translate it into electricity, their technology is such that the carbon intensity of that final energy product is actually higher than coal combustion. And so I don't think that's a solution. Um, everybody wants to find a solution to the manure issue. I mean, everybody does. And, and when we find it, it's going to be political gold for whoever's governor, because you're going to have a bipartisan support for it. I just don't think that technology is here yet. I haven't seen it. The closest we can come, in my opinion, I would agree, is probably more localized, farm by farm type technology.
0: Ernie, go ahead.
3: So the the Chesapeake uh, uh, or the Delmarva Land and Litter Challenge uh, organizations that have banded together to to solve this problem have concluded that there's two primary pathways for reducing this nutrient loading. One is land application done right. The right soils at the right rate at the right time uh, will absorb a lot of this and uh, allow for it to support uh, a viable agricultural economy. But the second solution arena is alternative uses. Energy is one alternative use. It's not the only alternative use. And that's why I have cautioned against thinking about this as a silver bullet. There is an opportunity to separate the nutrients out of the litter in, and, and sell those nutrients uh, in other uh, watersheds. There's an opportunity to use some of this for water recycling, if you're talking about dairy operations and animal agriculture. So there are a variety of these alternative emerging technologies, but because they're so young and immature, none of them are ready for prime time. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't continue to research and explore them. But the point is, um, this, this is part of this resiliency conversation, so where you can harness energy out of poultry litter or manure, let's do it, let's do it sustainably, but let's make sure that we're at the same time ensuring that these farm fields continue to produce food and fiber and clean water and clean air. You have to have the whole package tied together.
4: And by the way, I I actually have been heating my house since 2001 uh, with corn kernels, or organically fertilized corn kernels from a Mennonite farmer in Carroll County uh, that sustainably raised no-till agriculture, and it keeps my house, a little corn stove in the corner of my living room heats up my whole house and saves me money.
1: Uh, like Mike, I um, burn wood. It heats our entire house. Uh, we've been doing it for years. and um, But um, I think conventionally, based on everything I've heard, uh, burning wood, uh, switchgrass, any type of biomass, I think I've always heard that that is by far a much better solution than burning fossil fuels.
3: So we could debate the, the science around the comment you've just made for days and days and days. But my observation, work at the forestry community and the biomass community, is that there is a robust body of science that speaks to a different outcome. Dr. Surchinger's work uh, has been analyzed and debunked by many very respected uh, uh, soil scientists and life cycle uh, emission scientists. and. I think the point is not whether one study is right or wrong, but focus on what we're really talking about. We're not talking about cutting down whole trees and burning them. We're talking largely about using a working forestry landscape to, over the course of a life of a tree, uh, use its photosynthesis, use its carbon sequestration, its carbon sinking benefits that it brings forward. And when the tree is mature and dies, cut it, utilize it, take the sawboards and sell it for the highest and best use, and the trimmings and the thinnings when they thin trees can become pelletized and be used as the resource. So I think there's there's a lot of there are a lot of players in this renewable energy debate and if you really go back and follow the money and see who's behind any number of the studies that are out there, uh, our old friends in the fossil fuel industry who want to uh, continue to be the dominant energy provider are are there helping uh, to advance and undermine the confidence in some of these studies. Becky
2: We haven't really put together what is the cost of doing nothing and I think that there are urgencies with respect to climate change and with respect to all the environmental um, concerns that we've been discussing today. I also know that the grid has failed a number of times in the last few years and it is projected to fail again and that causes loss of life, it causes hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And if we're not starting to address what's the cost of doing nothing, I think we have a problem because we're just, we're stuck in, in arguing about what comes first and what comes next and who's territory, who's technology. I think we have to do something and, and I come back to community planning, regional planning, you know, get something going and start a plan and get it funded and, and get it out there. Move forward. Move forward, do something.
5: Sandy Boyman, earth data uh bring it back to the uh, consensus of the group that energy conservation and, and looking at appropriate technology is really the key in looking at all of it. Uh, You know, perfect discussion about solar and wind, and uh, it just seems to me that there needs to be a more thorough analysis of, uh, you know, what alternatives are used. And I remember back when I mean, Delaware was looking at their offshore wind, and somebody had run the numbers and come up with an interesting alternative that if they had bought every home household in Delaware a new Energy Star washer that would have produced reduced the amount of energy much more significantly than the offshore wind at a cost that was orders of magnitude less than the investment that it would have taken for the uh, the wind offshore. So I I really think what we need to do is really look at all the alternatives, like Ben suggested, and uh, do a real thorough analysis and really
1: take the low fruit before we start
0: investing in you know, all kinds of huge projects. Jay and Mike.
1: Well, I agree with that. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of options that we all need to look at. Uh, as I mentioned, we've taken two of them on our farm using wood, uh, wood energy and also solar. Uh, we've reduced our electric, uh, at least coming from Delmarva Power, to zero. Um, and if, just imagine if all of us did that. Uh, not only would we have more money in our pocket, but we'd be doing wonders for the environment. And so it's obvious that we've got a lot more work to do, and um, and the conversation needs to keep going, and and these good people that I'm sitting with, uh, we are preaching to the choir, but if we all start doing more and getting the the message out, uh, I think we can get there. Mike. Um,
4: The cleanest kilowatt hour of. Energy, of course, is the kilowatt hour that you don't use. Um, Californians use half the kilowatt hours of electricity per capita that Marylanders do, half. Uh, And they have iPhones and air conditioning and all that good stuff in California. Um, They got there through policies, energy efficiency policies, that uh, mandated high efficiency appliances, high efficiency uh, uh, home construction, et cetera, from the 1970s forward. And so today, they use half the electricity per capita as we do. Now, the fossil fuel folks uh, will say, yeah, but the price of electricity in California is twice as high per kilowatt hour as it is in Maryland to pay for all that. And the truth is, that's right. They do pay twice as high for electricity in California than here. But they use half as much, so their bills are the same as us. And it helps the climate and helps the, the economy. Uh, so these are great investments. We need to do a lot more in Maryland on energy efficiency investments. You know, I gave a shout out to the Hogan administration in terms of six secretaries voting to, to reduce carbon emissions 40% by 2030. Conversely, the Hogan administration has been hostile, in my view, to energy efficiency investments. Uh, they're trying to get the Public Service Commission to disengage from uh, energy efficiency uh, requirements for utilities in a way that I think is very contrary to what you're suggesting, we need. And, and um, they need to do better on that, in my view.
2: As far as the wind energy question, the, many times the vertical axis wind turbines have not been as productive as the, um, what you call, the horizontal axis wind turbines. I think the technologies are improving, and I think it's the, the, uh, the opportunity to have something is better than nothing. But I do think from a cost per kilowatt hour, sometimes the ones that are attractive may not yet be productive like we would like to have them.
0: So I have closing thoughts here um, as we end the panel. Ernie, Shaver first. So a new energy future is coming, and it's coming
3: quickly. And we can either watch it come or we can shape it. And I'm thrilled to be here with a group of advocates that want to shape it. Uh, These clean energy solutions have an opportunity to take root here on Delmarva and can be deployed in a way that improves energy efficiency, uh, improves our carbon footprint and supports the local economy. So I would urge you to think systems-wide. Avoid the attraction to a silver bullet. Avoid taking the bait of the fossil fuel industry and demonizing the less than perfect. Because collectively, our renewable energy assets on the De Marva Peninsula are a tremendous asset that are underutilized and ripe for development. Mike
0: Tidwell.
4: I agree with everything he said. Um, And (laughs) let me say that 13 years ago when I founded the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, uh, if we'd had a gathering here in Easton of good folks from the Eastern Shore uh, and done a poll, my guess is that most people in the room would not have known where their electricity comes from. Uh, 15, 13 years ago, most Americans didn't know what we used coal for you know coal miners and are we still or is there some people heating their homes with coal no it was it's to create overwhelmingly electricity Uh, 15 years ago, we had very low energy literacy. Today, we all are having this conversation. We're all here because we understand that the conventional power that we get is fossil fuel intensive with coal and natural gas, and we have to get off of it in a hurry. So the very conversation is light years away from what it was before, and that's a tribute to all the groups who've worked so hard on this. Um, But we have a lot further to go. Climate change is is happening much faster than our education level about it. We have to keep up. And frankly, I think the Eastern Shore, in terms of generating and deploying clean renewable energy systems, is falling behind the rest of the state. uh, And it's a region that has some really, really great opportunities of the sort you've heard here. So I just think we need to accelerate the conversation and move it quickly to reality uh, and start getting some of these systems deployed Uh, And and it's a host of things, again, that we've talked about, including efficiency.
0: Thank you, Rush.
2: Okay. Local power, I believe, is essential for not only economic independence, but also for energy security. And every possible step we can take to advance local energy assurance and local energy planning strategically is is important. Um, There are models that exist through local energy assurance plans community strategic energy plans, but somebody's got to do it and most often when I've spoken with um, community leaders they've said I don't have the time, I don't have the money, I don't have the people, I don't have whatever, but it's back to when will you have the time to do it and what is the cost of not having somebody in place or having something done and then having something tragic happen like the lights go out for a week. So I think that it's, it's time for kind of a risk management approach to some of the, um, the problems, and that having community ownership of community wind energy or community solar energy is at the core of a number of energy independent strategies.
1: The other speakers just spoke about our energy in a macro sense but we all have a responsibility to look at ourselves and how we're using energy and what we can do at each of our homes and what we can do in our community. Um, it all starts with us, and so what I would say to each of you is look at how you use your own energy, look at alternatives, and use that to educate yourself on what can be done. I wholeheartedly applaud what Congressman Gilcrest said about getting into the schools and urging our administrators to do more at the elementary and middle school level. Um, Every so often I have the opportunity to volunteer at the schools and it is encouraging beyond anything I've ever seen. I'm sure none of us talked about climate change when we were in elementary school, but they're talking about it today. And if you ask kids today, um, what they need to do, they'll go around and they're turning off the lights. My kids are doing it, other kids are doing it, but more can be done. So for those of you that have children, go to your county school board, encourage them to um, start doing more on uh, energy literacy, and in the end that will be beneficial to all of us. But um, I think everybody here is committed. I know every all of you are committed, and we just need to keep moving the ball forward. And uh, if all of us can do that, then we'll
0: make headway. And I want to thank, first, the Eastern Shore Conservancy for this conversation here today. It's really important. So I want to thank you all. Thank I think we found out that we may be singing the same song, maybe not just in harmony. Thank you. The Mark Steiner Show and SoundBites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our interns are Sianna Greaves, Manifa Wilson, and Calvin Perry. Our theme music is by Walt Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts on today's program to talk at steinershow.org. The podcast the Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org. You can also learn more about Sound Bites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, The Voicely Community, WSDL 90.7 FM Del Marva Public Radio. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.